Amen. It's the word of God. Uh, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff is a name that you likely have no clue who he is. You may. Um, you're unfamiliar with it unless you've spent some time around Wall Street and the stock exchange. You see, Bernie was an obituary that made it in the New York Times this last April. He died at the age of 82 in April. He was serving a 150-year-long sentence for operating the largest Ponzi scheme ever recorded in history. A staggering $170 billion had flowed through Madoff's hands. Some 4,800 investors lost more than $21 billion the difference between what they had put in versus what they got back in investing in him. Before his fall, he lived a huge life of pleasure, privately, but pleasure nonetheless. He had a Manhattan penthouse. He had an oceanfront Long Island mansion. He had homes in Palm Beach and Cap Antitibes. I can't even pronounce the island he lived on. Two yachts, a fishing boat. He had an executive jet. His only public vice was very expensive cigars. Well, December 2008, he confessed to his brother, Peter, and then to his sons, Mark and Andrew. He had, uh, they all worked for the firm, and he told them it's all just one big lie. He had been running a giant Ponzi scheme and that he intended to turn himself in. Well, he was arrested, he was convicted, he lost everything, and he received the max sentence you can receive from the federal prison that he served in 150 years of a sentence. Even worse this sad, to this sad story is two years after his arrest date, his oldest son, uh, Mark, hanged himself from all of the negative publicity that came to him. And the cost was paid uh, for this man, for Bernie and his family, and around him, uh, the people that suffered, including his investors. Why? Well, cause, because pleasure proved deadly. And it'll do that. You know, in a Ponzi scheme like he ran, there's always the promise of a fortune. There's a promise of temporary payoff, right? You invest and you'll get these massive returns. But ultimately, loss is the end of every Ponzi scheme. Empty promises always catch up with you is the woes of this lesson and introduction this morning. I mean, it's a simple lesson to be learned. All venture, but no gain. And that's the sermon title this morning for the reason. You know, it serves us, I think, as a shocking introduction to the point of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. So like those 4,800 investors hoping to claim a reward for their money by trusting a man like Bernie, the preacher is going to call us to listen to him about risk and about its rewards. He wants to give you an analysis to consider for yourself what man can find under the sun in pleasure. And so he doesn't just venture into money and wealth like the stock exchange story you're hearing now. He ventures deeper. He goes through a lot of things we'll see this morning, but it's ultimately after the soul of men and women. That's what he's trying to get down to. How can you protect your soul? How can you and I preserve our souls from the traps and the lies of pleasure-filled living? And then how can you glorify God in the midst of these things? Can we like, uh, you know, the Ecclesiastes preacher hopes. Can we learn from men like Bernie Madoff? The preacher says we can and we must. Two caveats today for two different types of people in the crowd this morning. If you're here today and you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I do want you to listen to the sermon. But I want you to be challenged this morning by this thought. If you're banking on anything in this world apart from Christ, it's a vanity. 
It's empty. It's a bankrupt investment. It's a Ponzi scheme of your life. It's a rat race. It will end in disaster now. It will end in disaster and eternal ruin. And I invite you to consider the examples and lessons of the preacher in Ecclesiastes with an open mind to consider what this text says of you if you don't know Christ this morning. But to the saints, to the church that's here this morning, this second group, it's the only two that ever gather in churches, by uncovering the poverty of idols in this world, you this morning can reassure your own soul of the prosperity that there is in Christ And so our invitation as the church today is to consider the rat race of life. That's verse one, our first point, the rat race of life. It's a thesis. It's a thesis, okay? And so our first point is just verse one. And as we consider the rat race that this life is, I want us to look at the risks and the rewards. Risks, verses two through eight. Rewards, verses nine through 11, to conclude with the preacher this morning that Look, sometimes in this world, if you pursue pleasure, all there is is venture, oftentimes with no gain. So let's talk about the real, the real stuff of life, okay? Let's do this in our first point, the rat race of life. Look at verse one again. You just heard our sister read it. Okay, it's an invitation. Come, okay? Come and listen. And what you're going to come to as you come now, the preacher speaking, it needs to be noted that like any good preacher, any good speaker, Uh, who we believe this to be Solomon here, he gives us a very bold statement. And he kind of gives us the whole sermon. He gives us the whole lesson of this morning in verse one. He makes it so clear, a bold statement indeed. If you test your life with pleasure and live for it alone, behold, it's a vain pursuit. If you take home anything today, I want you to take home verse one as the main point the preacher wants to convey. Now, what's in his thesis? Look a little bit closer at it with me. Now, I've used the term the rat race of life because I think that's what he's going to explain to us. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, about this rat race idea, it's a cultural uh, you know, colloquialism, we say, but it kind of means this, the endless, self-defeating or pointless pursuit in life. That's what a rat race is. It's often associated with men like Bernie that we heard about in our introduction. Men who give a lot of their life to a lot of hard work, it seems, but are banking on things that prove to be no returns. It's a business term, the rat race, when you're after trying to build your own kingdom. You're in the rat race of life. You're in the throes of it. It's like that. But where does the rat race of life begin? Well, look where the preacher shows us. He says, come now to his own self. So even though he's inviting us to listen, he's saying, let me talk for a minute to me. Come now, soul. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Look in verse one. He said that in his heart. Notice that. It's very important. You see, here's numero uno problem, number one here, for men like Solomon. He's taking the advice of men, and he's listening to his heart. I won't sing again for you. But you should not listen to your heart when it's calling for you. You should not follow your heart's dreams and desires. Disney has lied. They say things like, dream a wish that your heart makes. That's what a dream is. It's wishes of the heart. Follow it. Solomon shows up and says, no, I said in my heart some things. You see, the heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, is deceitful. It's a liar above all things. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know their own heart? 
But nonetheless, this is the path of our lesson. And through the heart, we will investigate some things. We'll investigate what can be gained in this life. But we will do it in one specific study, the study of pleasure, the study of pleasure. You see, verse one also makes it very plain that he is going to specifically test the heart with pleasure, enjoyment. Solomon is going to unbridle any bit that is holding him back from running the race of the fleshly appetite. He's going to get it all. Here is, you know, uh, only he's speaking to his spirit, but in the verses to come, we're going to see that his desires don't stay in the heart. They, they don't just live in the heart. They're conceived in sin, and they will bring forth death. He speaks very frankly about pleasure. Now, I will say this today. He, in the rest of the book, will speak about pleasure. He'll speak about it in good ways at times and bad ways at times. But this first passage is for us to really encounter to be taken badly today. It's the same word that's translated uh, in Proverbs 21, 17, pleasure. It says there, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. Who, he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. You see, there's a uh, call here to investigate hedonism. This idea that you live for pleasure and pleasure alone. And so you need to see there's a small difference. He's not trying to just wholesale talk about blind hedonism and not and do with it. He has experienced these things. He, he has walked this out. He's tried to do this. And he's inviting you to listen into this private conversation. So though he wants to condemn it, he also has personally experienced it, which is good for us because we've all experienced things like it. Let me see in this first verse, we have the answer already at the start. The preacher Solomon, he lets us in early. There's no suspense needed. <laughs> he says, behold, this also was vanity. Remember this word, guys, right? Hebel. It's missed. It's a vanishing return. There's no dividends. You'll be bankrupt, he says, if you pursue this. I mean, just like our introduction, the Ponzi scheme of Madoff, the preacher is going to take us through the risky pleasures of this life. And he's going to say, is there any real reward for us? as pertains to God. You know, the preacher had it all. When you think about the rat race of your life or any life you would talk to in your evangelism or any friend or someone you would think about that's trying to do this life with you, oftentimes we want it all. Oftentimes we want to build our own kingdoms. And so this is a very pointed thesis. You should pull up a chair. You should listen. This man who had everything he could ever want it's going to tell you how actually he had absolutely nothing of true value. That's the rat race. That's the thesis. Here's the risks. The risk of life, point two. Look at verses two through eight. The preacher gives us five clear risks that he took in his investment. And they're categorically there for us. Okay, he looked at things like laughter and joy. That's the first. He looked at wine, good drink. That's the second. Thirdly, material wealth. Fourth, the fine arts. And fifthly, sex. All had known risks and all bear the same fate on the preacher's soul. So let's look at them individually. First, let's look at the risk of laughter. So look at verse two. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So first to consider, first on the chopping block about pleasure and having pleasure in this life is to consider joy and fun and laughter. Now, laughter and pleasure are both here talking about a joy that's found in a, in, a, in a good, hearty laugh. That really is what you should think of. 
It clearly focuses on the usefulness uh, rather than its immediate benefits, okay? That, that, that the preacher is communicating the idea of, 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 like in a moment, how convincing you feel to be satisfied with humor or laughter. And yet he's going to show how it's short-lived in these few words. Always uh, searching for the next laugh or trying to always distract yourself with humor will lead you into a very bad place. I heard some podcasters recently talk about laughter and they brought up the point that often in funerals, you know, funerals are often filled with laughs. You notice that? Like amidst the grief. And these guys were talking about it and I thought it was clever. You know, someone will get up at a funeral and they'll talk about remembering the person and some funny story will come and, and right there in the midst of all that death, everyone will laugh. Or they'll talk about a memory of that person or some quirk that they had, something strange. And it's a laugh that's surrounded by grief. It begins with, in the heart, you have grief and pain. The laugh comes at the funeral, and then the grief returns. And I think Ecclesiastes is trying to say that, like Proverbs 14. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. Let me read that again. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. And the end of joy may be grief. You see, laughter in this sense is like a flower among the dead, tombs. But the author of Ecclesiastes wants to focus on the the limit that laughter has had in regards to giving him a really fulfilled life. I mean, guys, thank goodness we have pretty much lived through the age of sitcoms. But if you remember the history of sitcoms and what sitcoms have done, you know, uh, there was this uh, Hollywood-designed laugh track that gets laid on the top of every pathetic joke, right? It's like this prepackaged happiness that we all step into. When Wally Cleaver or Eddie Haskell did something funny in the 50s and 60s, ha, 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 there it was, right? Telling you, be happy. When Frazier Crane in the 80s around the bar at Cheers made a joke, ha, 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 there it was. But that kind of fabricated laughter took on a numbing effect, right? I mean, have you ever asked yourself, if you ever watched these, when's the last time you actually laughed out loud with the soundtrack laughter of a sitcom? You don't. I think that's where the preacher's headed to. He's trying to say, look, there's a numbing effect that can happen in your own soul if you just try to laugh life away. I mean, he did it, right? He brought in the greatest jokester, the wonderful comedian. And so he had these resources as the king, as we saw in last week, and that that this, he was able to surround himself with the funniest distractions. Joy and laughter, uh, you know, for God's good things can be done. Uh, that We learned that in Psalms 126. Listen to this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, that's God doing an amazing work for Israel, um, and they knew it. We were like those who dreamed, the psalmist says. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. I mean, joy and laughter in God's provision can be good. The scriptures are clear on that. But this pursuit of laughter is not what the preacher's pointing out. Let's put it in a stark, let's put a stark conclusion on this one before we move on. Robin Williams took his own life in 2014 due to years of depression. And the world asked, how? How could Mrs. Doubtfire or the jovial stand-up comedian that could put your, in a, your side in a, in a stitch of, with his impressions... How could he be hiding such brokenness behind such convincing humor? But it was there. 
The wretched stink of sin was there, despite the laugh. All venture, no gain. I don't understand. You know, I don't stand here to pronounce any judgment on whether or not Williams, you know, he mocked Christianity, but he was also a member of the Episcopal Church. I don't know if Robin Williams is in heaven or hell. That's up to the Lord. It's not for us to conclude. But his public life became to all of us a walking example that there can be some vanity in humor. The preacher has pursued such hiding of his life in humor, and he's telling you today it did him no good. There was no gain. There was no meaning. It was all risk, and there was no reward. The second he turns to is wine, the risk of wine. Look in verse 3. I'm going to read it again. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. The preacher's sermon turns, and he grabs a drink, right? Now listen, there is no teetotaling taboo nonsense with the preacher. I need to say that. He, like the rest of the scriptures, concerning and dealing with alcohol, he knows the good and the bad of this gift from God. Okay, the good, all God. The bad, all us. He knows that. But we struggle <laughs> to know that, especially in our context. Now, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer up, cheer my body with wine, regardless if we're talking about him recklessly experiencing uh, drunkenness or we're talking about him having a controlled test on alcohol. Both could be, uh, both are drawn up here in his own words. He wants you to think about both. There's no way around the fact of this, that he is choosing very pointedly to pursue the effects of wine and alcoholic drinks on the body. All right? He wants pleasure. Remember your thesis, verse 1. And the word for cheer here in this text can, can mean to drag along or to draw out. Okay, he's dragging. He's moving, altering. He's drugging his body with wine. That's the idea. Now, this may seem extreme, but we must remember verse 1, right? And the need to have a compelling argument for such a bold statement. I love what one writer in the Gospel Coalition said about wine. Quote, wine is risky. It's not for those who lack judgment. It's not for children. You see that in the very reality of wine itself. Wine isn't immediately appealing. It's something you have to develop a taste for. Wine is the opposite of fruit, the writer says. Fruit is simple. Wine is complex. Fruit is for children. Wine is for adults. Fruit is immediately appealing. Wine is something for which you acquire a taste. Fruit helps children grow into adults. Wine can cause adults to behave like children. Wine's not new. Um, it is created by God. It is first mentioned in the Bible in the abuse of it by Noah. And there are numerous scriptures showing the warnings of wine. We need to say that. There are also numerous scriptures to challenge the teetotaler to consider whether he stands on biblical grounds when he says entirely that it is inherently sinful. The same author says this, in ways that can raise the eyebrow of contemporary readers, the Bible celebrates wine with a kind of unrestrained joy. It even celebrates its alcoholic content. It is part of its intrinsic goodness. And he gives some examples. For example, the anesthetic qualities of wine are commended in Proverbs 31.6. Paul tells Timothy to drink wine because of his frequent illnesses in 1 Timothy 5. Wine, it says in Psalm 104.15, can make the hearts of men merry. Wine is celebrated for what it does to a party. 
In Deuteronomy 14, for the festival of the tithe, Israel was commanded to have a party before the Lord. They were commanded. A party for which they are commanded to buy cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drinks, and then eat in the presence of the Lord and rejoice. Deuteronomy 14, 26. In short, wine, in God's view, should mean rest. It also means celebration. Wine should mean completion. Wine should be end of work, duty done, enemies subdued. Wine should mean Sabbath. Have you ever thought about the fact that every time you read the Old Testament prophets, you realize that when they lament things about what they miss when they're in exile, they're always talking about the the vine that would flow, the juice that would flow, the grape that would flow, the, the good drink of God that would fill their hearts with merriment. That's what they longed for, and they connected it to God, even in its In its allegorical sense, this was a picture of God saying, the fruit of the vine is good. And then who showed up on the scene in John for his first miracle to turn water into wine at a festival, enough to fill a bathtub, or a few of them actually, and very strong. So that is the truth. So make no mistake this morning, that is the truth. But the preacher here is speaking about wine as a pleasure, but he's not speaking about it in the way that I just told you the scriptures are clear about, is he? No, he said, my heart, though it was still guiding me with wisdom, sought to lay hold of the folly of it, the folly of wine. Notice the preacher is somewhere between the two understandings, right, of wine um, experience-wise. In the first place, he makes the statement, and this is Solomon, we think, right? And Solomon was given wisdom. And he says, I didn't give that up. So in other words, I approached the drink with my wisdom. I mean, that's, that's a big deal in this one. The other ones are pretty wholesale, but he wants to really make clear here, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. But in the second place, he also wants to lay hold of another desire in his heart. That is, to see what these fools who get drunk and stay drunk and live a flamboyant life actually have. Ultimately, this test is like his reflections on joy and laughter. Except it's not just the mind alone now. Now he wants to bring his body into it. He's aware that, just like we should be, that our bodies are passing away with time. And every one of us have to live a life. We don't get much condemnation or fruit from this decision. Uh, Just the acknowledgement for now that it was a risk, an adventure. And it was designed by the preacher to bring a normal experience for him into something horrible, drunkardness, drunkenness. So whether it is uh, measured you know, responsible for the experiment that he's doing or whether he is really just trying to get stumbling, blind, blackout drunk, uh, he has something to say, doesn't he? You see, the preacher's concluding what too many people live for in this world when it comes to the bottle, dependency and drunkenness. You see, we know those to be true. We may struggle with the first truth of how God can use this, but what we know to be true is is at the end of the bottle, we feel as empty as it sometimes. Proverbs 23 is pointed about this. Let me ask you some questions from it. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? This is the Bible I'm reading. Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who uh, go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. It's a snake. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. 
You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, Proverbs 23 says, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me up, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? And here's the conclusion about pursuing this pleasure. That verse ends by saying in verse 35, I must have another drink. All venture here again, no gain. Hide not your soul in laughter. Hide not your soul in wine. It will not be kept. It will be lost. Next, he turns to a third category, material wealth. Look at verses 4 through 8a. This is the biggest section here. I won't read it again, but you heard the list, didn't you? Material wealth is all over these pages. This chapter, more than any other, uh, really gives us details that remind us of King Solomon, don't they? No one lived a bigger life than King Solomon. No one. When it came to pleasure and material wealth, I mean, uh, one commentator noted that, you know, uh, when it comes to Koheleth's life, the Solomon's life that's, that's pictured for us here, um, it, is, it is remarkable that when you think of the Westminster Catechism and the first question, that what is the chief end of man? The right answer is to enjoy God, right? right? We, we, we enjoy God forever. And yet, one commentator made the note that when you study this guy's life, it's really like the exact opposite of that. I mean, for him, the chief end of man in his is to glorify himself. And his chief end is also to enjoy himself forever. That's really what's happening. Now, how many of you watch MTV Cribs when you were growing up, like I did? If you know MTV Cribs, you know that if there was an episode of Solomon's life, uh, it would have been a really good episode, right? I mean, that's what verses four through six, or four through eight, the first part of it are. They're bringing you uh, into the household of Solomon, right? And you're seeing all that he's got. Check him out. He does not, you know, have one dream house. He's got plenty of houses. He has stacks on stacks of stuff, sprawling acres, tens of thousands of acres, likely. On all this land, he filled it with his favorite foods, his favorite trees and plants and the ability to make them all watered. He was an irrigator. I mean, he mastered these things. Many commentators raise the point. In many ways, Solomon seems to be in this building, trying to say, hey, he's building his own garden of Eden. Like, think about all the language that's here. I mean, what does he do? He creates all of this space. Then he builds these structures and he fills them with trees and fruit and people and servants and all of this. I mean, he's like the highest accolades of architecture and horticulture have been ple pleased him. He, he's pursued it. Verses seven through eight, he filled those things with people, servants, so much so that some of them, he even had servants born in his own house. In other words, he's saying, this is generational wealth. We're talking about a long period of life where this pleasure of seeing and owning and building and standing on the top of you finally arrived at your kingdom type mentality. Solomon's provisions, First King tells us, one day worth of eating was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, okay, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, and all that besides deer and gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. That's 1 Kings 4.22, talking about one day of the buffet option that this dude had. That's what they would kill and prepare various meals for, for him and his people to go and eat whatever meals they wanted. Just think about that. How can anyone imagine eating so much? 
Truthfully, no one. And that's the thing. He had an appetite. He didn't have hunger. He wasted much of, of every day, no doubt, trying to come up with these greatest meals. Again, 1 Kings is helpful to tell us about other things he had. I mean, listen to this. It says that king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram, okay? And once every three years, the ship would come back bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now, I did some like studying uh, in, 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 in Hebrew this week to really see if that meant that Solomon got so rich that people were bringing him monkeys and peacocks to enjoy. He did. He actually got that rich. It's kind of like the way our zoo started in Lufkin. Some guy's rich enough to give his buddy a hippo as a gift, as a friend, right? Just give you this hippo, because what are you going to do with a hippo for Christmas, right? Oh, you'll just start a whole zoo out of it, right? That's what rich people do, right? I mean, the world is theirs. And sure enough, this is what happened. These ships would come back, and there was so much gold. Listen to this in 1 Kings 10, the wealth that's mentioned that Solomon had. It comments, the Bible comments and says that silver was as common as stone in Solomon's day. That, that cedar wood was as plentiful as the sycamore. Sycamore is a worthless tree. It goes all over, grows real fast. Cedar, really valuable. Build with the cedars of Lebanon, right? I mean, what he's saying is, is gold was literally just like stones, like rocks out there. That's how rich this kingdom and this king was. It's true that there was never anyone before Solomon with such power and wealth and arguably no one after him. So the power of pleasure really flexes hard on us again in this, in this example. It's beckoning us to stare at this glorious enterprise, right? Surely there's gain here. If we're honest, I think we're a little bit envious. I mean, let's be honest for a second. It'd be awesome to be able to have everything in this life that you want. I can't tell you how many times in my own marriage we boil down our problems before we get to the heart of it to money. How often do you feel like if I could just get a little bit more cheddar, if I could just get a little bit more money, I'd be able to do this thing. I'd be able to move my family here. I'd be able to do this. I'd be able to accomplish this goal. I'd be able to find, you know, fixes to our problems. I mean, we do think like this, even in the church. And it's so easy to fall into, you know, the, the theologian, the notorious B.I.G., you know, Biggie, he said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. More money, more problems. Biggie's right. <laughs> Increase your wealth. Live for money. Your gains in this world will always equal problems. There's more money, there's more problems. There's losses for your soul. You see, you gain a lot only to lose your soul. All venture, no gain. The preacher knows it. Um, his garden of Eden that he built was never free of root rot. You see, every tree that bore fruit had an issue at the root. There was always boredom around every corner. And the realization is that just shiny metal that's pulled from the earth, it's kind of all gold is. Money itself makes a miserable friend. And it too makes... A friend miserable. That's the idea. Big risk in wealth. A fourth category is the risk of arts. Look at 8B. It's only mentioned there. It says, I got singers, he said, both men and women. Now, what we've seen are carnal, right? Shallow humor of comedy, the, the lowball vanity of wine and wealth. Surely there is satisfaction in the more sophisticated pleasures of the arts, right? I mean, surely Solomon can get to this deeper culture, right? That's what happens here in verse 8b. This is a favorite vice for men like Solomon, high-end entertainment. 
There's also uh, the ability Solomon had to have countless sound in his ears. So listen, before the days of Spotify or Amazon Music or Apple Music, where we can fill our houses and our cars and our time with music of any kind we want, Solomon's time didn't boast such abilities. Unless you had a private ability to play in your own home and sing, there was not the turn on the radio and listen to whatever music you want. And yet for Solomon, he had it. I mean, he was able to, to fill his home with the greatest musicians from across every culture. He said it, they played it. He could listen to the beautiful voice of any man or woman that he wanted to get. He had that kind of power. And this is a good time, I think, to say in many ways, we actually have it even better than Solomon. I mean, I just gave you the points about your streaming devices. One commentator said it plainly. He said, quote, generally speaking, we live in better homes with better furniture and climate control. That, that seems like a lie this morning, but we do have that, right? Air conditioners. Continuing, we dine at a larger buffet and listen to much wider variety of music. Everything is offered to us. Nothing is unavailable. And that's true. And Solomon attempts here are like the attempts of the you know, aristocratic kind of bourgeoisie from any century. I mean, history was replete with examples of people who got to the highest and, and, and had the best caviar and the most delicious wines and the highest end coffees, whatever they want. So, you know, laughter that we all understand it in our, in our poverty, men of this type who get singers, I'm sure that he spent much pennies to fill his gardens with people and bring in the greatest comedians. He wasn't just doing the, you know, the cruise line comedy uh, on the cruise ship, right? I mean, he brought in like the guy to have everyone there. When it came to wine, he wasn't picking Boone's farm up off of the, you know, cabinet or Farmer Johnson's land as common man's pleasure, but he had instead the finest wines, aged 30 years from his own grandfather's vineyards. That's what filled his belly. When it came to wealth, we've already covered, you know, there's the purchase of a newly financed Kia, which is awesome, and the common man would understand, right? That's blue-collar gents. But when it comes to a cash purchase of a Bugatti and a Corvette and a classic hot rod and a big garage museum to put them all in, that's when you know you're a high roller. Solomon had it. Now, he didn't have Bugattis back then, but he had the equivalent. Solomon lived high-end, high-life, highfalutin, and yet he was lower than ever. Remember his conclusion. Like an ideological tornado ripping through that super garage of all of his cars, the modern millionaire will realize, even if you gain the arts, the finest thoughts on things, you gain nothing. If that's all you get. All venture, no gain. The last one is... is uh, it's a little rough, right? The risk of sex. Look at verse 8c. It says, many concubines, Solomon got. The delights of the sons of man. Maybe the greatest risk comes last on the list today. When we look at Solomon and this comment, the scriptures make it clear that the level of pleasure that this man sought in sexual relationships is, uh, is unmatched. So in 1 Kings 11, it says, now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall, you, shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon, he clung to those in love. And verse 3 says he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Same word. And his wives turned away his heart. A thousand 
women, a thousand divisions of his soul to different lovers. Talk about an insatiable desire for pleasure that he was willing to pander with his power to his own destruction and no doubt to the staggering destruction of many of these households and these, these, these ladies. The statistics are staggering. You know, his abuses are pretty notorious in that verse, but I think they ring in the ears of the modern man pretty simple. The statistics regarding us are staggering as well, showing that we know this pleasure as Americans more than any other nation in history. Pornography consumption is out of control. Today, most American men and women have their own harem equivalents and worse in the usage of internet pornography. Average ages of exposure and addiction get lower and lower, younger and younger. Soft core is now disappearing. You cannot find it. Hardcore is a violent expose, is the new normal. Our nation in Germany produced more internet pornography than any other nation. 30% of the internet is filled with it right now, and you do not want to know how big the internet is. This industry of selling of sex uh, generates more wealth than all of the major televised sports and leagues in our country combined. It is proven that sexual addiction is something like equivalent to the neurological connections your brain makes when it takes crack cocaine, heroin, and meth. But this is a simple one, right? I mean, Solomon is trying to tell you here when he slips here in the end, there are all these concubines and as First Kings makes explicit, this will turn your heart away, man. This will kill your heart. Nothing will make you feel more shriveled up and more barren than ruining your life in the sexual mores of immorality. Nothing proves to be emptier quicker or you don't get to the bottom barrel fallout of the end of, of realizing pleasure is not a gain in this regard than this failure. So do we see the preacher's thesis illustrated clearly? I think we do. I mean, he has concluded from experience that this rat race of life, verse one, is a risky one, right? And the risks are not small and unimportant. But the question we have to ask, is life all risk then? Those are big categories that we could kind of, you know, manipulate and kind of explain all of life with, these big five. Or is there some reward? Is there some way to understand these things better? And we have to look to the final verses to see the conclusion. So he does talk about rewards. Look in verses 9 uh, through 11. Let's start in verse 9. He says in verse 9, so, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. But look right here. Also, my wisdom remained with me. That's pointed. You see, this great king reigned with toil and hard work, and, and its main production yielded for him was pleasure. That's what this sermon's about, right? He did get pleasure. So in the moment, there was great and surpassing wealth. There was the joy of the laughter. There was the intimacy. There were all these things that in the moment were good. I mean, something that we always wanted as a kid, you know, when you were growing up, how many times did you play MASH as a kid? Anybody remember MASH? Mansion, apartment, shack, house. What are you going to get? And how many times did we create our own hopes and failures on a little diamond folding game, right? Where you do those numbers and then you flip it over. It's like, oh, you're poor. Oh, you're a millionaire, as you predicted the future, right? How many times did you pass go, collect $200, hoping to land on Park's Place or, or the boardwalk? I mean, Solomon makes the point saying that, that there's some effort and some give right here, right? And so wisdom remained with him. It's not, it can't just all be tossed out so quickly. That's why verse 1 is not enough for you this morning. 
You need to sit under the weight of the risk exposed in two through eight. And in nine here, he's trying to say that. He's trying to say, look, wisdom remained with me. I did get it all. Like I played those games and then I went and did it, man. But remember, the promise of God is to receive wisdom in this whole book. So look at verse 10. He says, in case you didn't believe him, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, all my work. And this was my reward. You see that? For all my toil. So it's clearly spelled out for us now, right? Solomon says, I kept my heart from nothing. Pleasure produced more pleasure, but it never really produced anything else. Every listed item, every one left to the imagination that's not listed here, he really had it all. Satisfaction, though, never came. His insatiable drives were carnal. And yet there was a reward. What did he learn? All right. Well, I, have you hoped this entire time for something different than what we have already concluded in verse 1 and have explained? I hope so. That's what is happening here. So look at verse 11. In verse 11, he says, Then I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You're like, wait, well, I thought I was holding on for something hopeful in conclusion here. Well, there's actually not, but there kind of is. You see, again, his conclusion is simple, and it's personal. I even think it's provocative to our minds. Let me draw the picture out with you some more. I want you to imagine Solomon frustrated with his servant. Okay, I want you to imagine Solomon getting frustrated that the servant brought him a bowl of fruit that he was sick of. I want you to see Solomon demanding a new flavor, a new taste, a new plant. But his servant's explaining that by this point, the gardens have already been plucked. There is nothing new. Friend, I want you to imagine Solomon realizing halfway through lining his entire house in gold that when he was doing the work to plate it all and the toil there, I want you to realize how much he hates it. He looks at it and he's like, dude, gold's actually a really ugly color and there's just too much of it. That probably happened. I want you to imagine Solomon's boredoms as he sat there. The first 10 years, funny. The last 10 of the same jokes repackaged in the next singer or the next musician or the next playwright, hoping for a new chord or a new harmony or a new melody that could pick his spirits up to a permanent good and never getting it. I want you to imagine Solomon at the end of a long party, a week-long bash, a real blowout, watching his servant clean the halls as he sits on his decadent throne room where they just all partied, feeling so alone, just like those hollow corridors. I want you to feel Solomon's headache this morning, his bloatedness, his dizziness as he recovers from two days of strong drink and its experiments. I want that acidic liquor to go down your own throat as he goes again to the next drink and hopes that at the other end of that empty bottle, he'll find an answer. Maybe most seriously, imagine the tears of Solomon upon realizing how many times he had left a part of his soul mingling in the bed of the thousand women. It's unlikely every one of these women wanted to be with him. So imagine the pain of knowing the monster you are as you look in the mirror. Imagine the numbness, the dirty feeling, the soul that climbed out of the chamber bed again and again and again. Can you cry with Solomon? I'm sure it rings true in your ears. Because in some way, all of us have pursued pleasure wrongly to our own doom. 
Even if it is from the servant's hall of poverty, where you're just the person in his, you know, in his, in his kingdom, that you're just serving and that's all you have, you've at least wanted it. You've experienced it in your own ways. Here's the conclusion. I said at the beginning of our time, if you're here today and you're not a believer in God, then listen expectantly and be challenged. I wanted you to. Also, if you're in Christ and you do trust the gospel, I want you to listen and be challenged as well. That is because both parties, the saved and the unsaved, this morning need to hear the same message, even if it produces two responses. We need to hear it. And I'm going to explain it in the conclusion here with an illustration and then an invitation before we pray and sing. Here's the illustration. I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia right now with my girls, uh, and it's wonderful. And this week, we're in the fourth book of the series written by C.S. Lewis called Prince Caspian. I found an interesting story as I read it to them. It's in the 10th chapter. That chapter is called The Lion Roars. Now, in Narnia, the Lord of Lords, if you will, the supreme ruler, the the creator God in Narnia is Aslan the lion. You know this. But he hasn't been in the story of Prince Caspian, you see. That book for all nine chapters before, he's not been there. And the land at this time is ruled by evil men. In the, in the thousand years, generations have passed, and there was once four kings, or four people, excuse me, two kings and two queens who ruled. Those days are past. And now Narnia is ruled by this evil uncle, Miraz. It's all human. The, the animals aren't talking anymore. There's only a few of them that are in hiding. They're with Prince Caspian. The hope is, is that they can defeat him and make Caspian the real king but they're not doing well. And so Caspian blows the horn. This is a magical horn that can bring help. And so ushered back into Narnia are our favorite characters, Lucy and Susan and Edmund and Peter. And they come back, previously kings, and they realize they're a thousand years since they've been in Narnia. And they realize the darkness that's there. Now, the problem is, is they try to make their way to Caspian. They can't find him. But then something amazing happens. Lucy sees Aslan and she says, there he is. But the older siblings can't believe. They're struggling to believe, so they can't see him. Well, he comes again, and he says, follow me. Aslan tells Lucy, follow me, and I will get you to your destination. So she tells them, you have to follow me, and so they do. And along the way, they start to see Edmund first, and then Peter, and then Susan, and then they see with their eyes that Aslan really is leading them in the story. Now, we get to this point of the story, and I'm giving you the background because it's so pointed of an illustration, I think. And as I was reading it to my girls, it kind of bothered me. You see, Aslan does something. He roars. They get to the camp and he roars. And his roar goes out and it shakes the trees. And what happens is, is it wakes up some things. You see, when Aslan's roar and the loud truth of it hits Narnia, it comes to life, man. And Lewis is brilliant. He makes it come to life in a glorious way. The trees come, and they all have a personality, and they all look a different way, and they're dancing, and the trees are dancing, and it's merriment. And for a moment, Lucy and, 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 uh, and Susan, they are a bit confused because all of a sudden, this boy shows up. And Lewis writes, quote, his face would have been almost too pretty for a boy's if it had not looked so extremely wild. You see, this wild boy shows up. He's covered in fawn skins, and he has all these girls with him, and they're like dancing, and there's all this merriment. And all of a sudden, they're crying out, refreshments, refreshments, and they're starting to drink and enjoy the grapes that are there. And, and it's, it's 
chaos, but beautiful. And it's this amazing music, and it's this huge party. And then this food shows up, and it's the most delicious grapes you've ever tasted, and it fills the belly. Everyone is just worn out, this huge, it's basically a romp is what they call it, which is just a rave minus drug use, all right? And so they're raving mad because of Aslan's roar, this crazy party. He's wild. Edmund says this about him when he meets him a few days later about this, about this boy. He says, there's a chap who might do anything. I mean, absolutely anything. And with this thought comes the introduction of, this is kind of dangerous. Like this frivolity is pretty dangerous. This, uh, he, he goes by many great names. He goes by Bromios or Baceres or the Ram. That was three of them, Lewis says. And there were a lot of girls with him that were as wild as he. Now, it comes to an end, the party does, and the game's end, and everyone flops down breathless on the ground. They turn their faces to Aslan to hear what he would say next. Now, here's how the chapter ends. It says, at that moment, the sun was rising, and Lucy remembered something, and she whispered it to Susan. She said to her sister, I say, Sue, I know who they are. Who? Susan says. The boy with the wild face is Bacchus. Don't you remember Mr. Thomas telling us about him long ago? Yes, of course, says Susan. But I say, Lou, she pauses. What? Lucy asks. Susan answers, I would not have felt safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we had met them without Aslan. Lucy agrees. Oh, I should think not. Now, C.S. Lewis is willing to write Bacchus, or that is the Greek, or excuse me, that's the Roman title of the god Dionysus, which is the Greek title for the god of wine and fertility and partying. He's willing to write that into a story for children. That's bold, right? But here's why. He knew to locate the risk of Bacchus, to locate this party. There's a donkey, for crying out loud, that shows up at one point, and everyone thinks it's funny, but everyone's confused about it. It's just this awesome moment. He writes all of this, what seems to be poverty, what seems to be something that could destroy, he writes it into the shadow of Aslan, the lion. You see, Lewis understands that there was only one thing that could wake up the trees, There was only one thing that could bring the party with all of its good to balance. There's only one thing to offset the wild throes of Bacchus and his girls to have them do the right and good thing. You know what it was? It was Aslan's roar. It was Aslan's presence. It was this Christ-like lion who was willing, in the first books you read, to go to the stone table and pay, pay a penalty of death so that others who deserved death because they were traitors could live. And because that lion is the king of Narnia, the only reason why all these amazing pleasures, this awesome ride on the donkey and this crazy drink that is so good, the pleasures and the enjoyment of life, the only reason why it was not dangerous and risky is because Aslan was there, this character. You see, when you pursue the risks of life that the preacher has covered for us this morning for selfish gain, you will do anything. You will be reckless, and you will find the hurt of generations. You will find the curse of sin. You will find the brokenness of life. But listen to me. If you will realize that in these broken pleasures, there is a God who created and is Lord over them and who has sent someone who came perfectly to handle wine 
and to handle every temptation and to take on every single struggle, you will connect the dots and see that this whole passage has primed you to realize it is Christ alone. Christ is the better Aslan, right? I mean, Christ came as wisdom personified. He challenged the rich fool. Don't give your whole life to riches. Come follow me. And then he told the ones that would come follow him, I'm going to make you rich and bless you. I mean, Jesus actually did that. Why? Because he wants to give. He wants to give all the good gifts of his father. But sin has ripped these out of our hand, and yet we can take them back. And a famous, uh, another famous work, The Weight of Glory, Lewis said it like this. You know this quote, I'm sure. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, in our sin, we're all venture, no gain. And that's the problem. But it was God's good pleasure to solve the problem for us. He led us through the woods like Aslan. God has sent the greatest lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has sent the God-man, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to rise again for us, to give us life and life abundantly. Joy is restored in Jesus. Trusting this message in faith is the beginning. To those lost, trust this message by faith. You will receive everything under the sun that the preacher concludes is meaningless this morning. You will receive it rightly. And when you receive Christ, you can receive his gifts rightly. When you receive Christ, you can enter into creation the way you were created to do it. You can sit with a good glass of wine, and you can savor good food, and you can enjoy good company, and you can laugh with good comedy. You can enjoy great stories, and you can live a life of satisfaction, not numb. You just need to live it in the presence of this king. So be pleased with him, and with him, all your pleasure will be fulfilled. Let's pray. God, I come to you and I thank you for this morning and these people who we get to sweat together and enjoy uh, your word, Lord. Help us to see the good and pursue it. God, I pray for the greatest good to be known in this room, which is you, Christ, true wisdom. Father, I pray that you will show us how you and your love for us demonstrated it, that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. And in our dead state that we deserve, you took You beat it, and you defeated death, and you rose again. God, help us to this morning. Root all of our gifts, everything we have. May we root it all in you. May we see, God, that if we put it anywhere else or to any purpose, it is a vanity. The the writer of Ecclesiastes is honest with us this morning. Thank you, God. And we ask for your help to give up these pleasure pursuits in, in hopes of pursuing you so that then we can have pleasure in our pursuits. So, God, will you help us to solve this riddle? And will you remind each of us, God, as we go from here, that there is a world out there that needs a witness. They need to see us enjoy your good gifts, not to our own destruction or theirs, but to your glory and to our good. And so God, help us as a people to model this type of faith. We ask for uh, just blessings in our time as we sing and as we pray together as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.